Greetings, film pals. I bid you welcome to The Cinematic Crypt, a movie podcast hosted by Movie John's Old Sport and Classic Coroner, Rosalie Kicks. Me. Each episode, I travel six feet under and pry open a coffin of one of my favorite Hollywood corpses and perform a post-watch examination of one of their forgotten films. Lend me your ears and listen along as I summon the spirits of Hollywood's dearly departed and uncover your next favorite film from the grave. Before we descend into the crypt, I will begin with reading my obituary, a notice of what I have been up to since we last spent time together. I have been watching many films, as I have been confined to my crypt. Not that this has been a problem, goblins and ghouls, for I find myself most comfortable when tucked in under my own dirt, much like Nosferatu. It has also been grand to catch up on films that I have been meaning to watch. Occasionally, in watching even a bad film, I find myself inspired when it comes to my own work. This is what occurred following my watching of the 1946 Devil Bat's Daughter. In the first episode of Cinematic Crypt, I uncovered one of my favorite corpses, a corpse crush, Bella Lugosi to examine the 1940 film Devil Bat. I have been meaning to catch up with the so-called sequel for quite some time, and boy, I could not have been more disappointed in this film. Goblins and ghouls, my mind is very much a wild place, controlled by a little man with levers who has the fondness of the tramp. That's right, Charlie Chaplin in modern times. The gears and cogs are always on the move, churning out new and mystifying ideas. Occasionally, these schemes and plans come to me with the assistance of outside supernatural forces. Like when I was watching Devil Bat's Daughter, it was like a candle was lit within my mind and a dark spot within a tunnel was illuminated by who else but the spirit of Bela Lugosi. Summoning me from the grave, whispering into my ear, bestowing on me my next project to remake Devil Bat's Daughter. You're a dreamer, Doc. Too much money is bad for dreamers. So you try to pay me in flattery, telling me that I'm a dreamer. Well, I do dream. Dreams that you could never guess. I have been meaning to get back to my script writing, and in watching the abomination that is Devil Bat's daughter, it was like peering into a crystal ball, a tremendous and wonderful future filled with adventure. I shall remake this film. Now, this will be a large commitment. Other experiments will need to be placed on the back burner. Social events will need to be skipped. But I think this journey shall be worth it. For far too long, I have neglected my film writing and look forward to toiling in my film laboratory with my word processor, a flowing cape, and a fine beverage in the moonlight to make things right by Bela and give him the sequel Devil Bat Deserved, a picture that stood for something, a picture that showed the faults of capitalism and portrayed Bela in his true form as a hero. 
The current version of Devil Bat's Daughter managed to say nothing. Of course, I shall ensure it leaves its lasting mark. Coincidentally, speaking of daughters, this leads me to the motion picture I shall be dissecting on today's program. All right, film pals, time to grab your cape and get comfortable with a cocktail. It is time for our regularly scheduled spooky program. Follow me, but watch your step as you descend down to the cinematic crypt. This marks the 13th episode of the cinematic crypt. And as I mentioned in the previous episode, the numeral 13 has much significance to your favorite little grave digger. As October 13th marks the day that I arrived into this world, I have therefore always been quite fond of the number 13, despite much of society finding it to be rather unlucky. The next time you're in an elevator, take a look for yourself. See if there is a 13th floor. Goblins and ghouls, I felt there was no better way to celebrate this momentous occasion, our 13th time together, than with a vampire. Today, I will be prying open the coffin of Gloria Holden and dissecting the 1936 black and white beauty, Dracula's Daughter. This film was meant to be a sequel to the famously well-known 1931 Todd Browning film, Dracula, starring who else but Bela Lugosi. However, the only returning cast member from the original film was Edward Van Sloan, who played the role of Van Helsing, but in Dracula's Daughter finds the name changed to Von Helsing. The film was said to have been based on a deleted chapter from Bram Stoker's 1897 novel, Dracula, a chapter that was later published in 1937 as a short story entitled Dracula's Guest. In negotiating with Stoker's widow, Florence, Universal learned that Bram had not complied with the requirement of the U.S. Copyright Office regarding his novel Dracula causing the work to enter public domain, meaning that anyone could utilize the work without obtaining permission. In 1934, Universal bought the rights to Stoker's material, and the work would revert back to MGM if Universal did not begin production by October 1935, a date that was later extended to February 1936. After much wavering, the film was rushed into production with a partially written script. Universal first hired John Balderston to write a new story, which ended up being drastically different from Stoker's deleted chapter. Balderston's treatment, basically meaning a summary or outline of the script, was planned to feature torture and bring real horror to the people. The Hayes office, who oversaw content that was portrayed in film, and set standards for what was deemed moral at the time, did not approve of Balderston's ideas. 
As I said earlier, the film was intended to take place immediately following the events of Browning's 1931 film Dracula, and although there are several references to Bela Lugosi's Dracula character, he was not physically part of the final production of Dracula's Daughter. The script for Dracula's Daughter ended up having a mere seven writers involved, with scriptwriter Garrett Fort obtaining the final writing credit. He was known for other horror pictures in which he shared writing credits on such as Dracula and Frankenstein. Dracula's Daughter would mark the last horror film Carl Lemley was involved in. Carl was the famed German-born filmmaker and founder of Universal Pictures. His son, Carl Lemley Jr., or as many refer to as simply Jr., would go on to produce much of the classic talky monster flicks that we all love, such as Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, Dracula, and The Invisible Man, just to name a few. Dracula's daughter's production seemed to be riddled with problems, though, costing the studio $278,000 to complete, which inevitably made it the most expensive universal picture of the 1930s. Four days after production wrapped on Dracula's Daughter, Universal's principal backer on the project, Standard Capital Corporation, seized control of the studio, and Lemley was removed from the project. The film languished in pre-production for over two years. Originally, Dracula's Daughter was to be directed by James Whale, the filmmaker who helmed many of Junior's previous monster flicks. Frankenstein, The Bride, and Invisible Man. Whale ended up leaving the project, though, due to his script being said to be too outrageous. So Universal brought on Edward Sutherland, a director that was apparently top drawer at the time. In the end, he also left the project due to numerous production delays, but managed to still be paid due to his contract having a pay-or-play clause meaning he earned $17,500 simply for his involvement with the production. He was replaced by Lambert Hillier, a former journalist who came from a show business family who was mostly known for directing B-Westerns. He had recently worked with Universal on the Lugosi Karloff film, The Invisible Ray, which was filmed in 1935 and later released in 1936. He was paid $5,000 to direct Dracula's Daughter, and it was shot in 29 days. Like many B-movie directors of the time, Lambert finished his career out in television. B-movies are considered low-budget motion pictures that were highly popular during the golden age of Hollywood, which is considered primarily the 1910s to the 60s. Much like a B-side of a vinyl record, a B-movie was a film intended to be shown as a second feature with a runtime of 70 minutes or less. Originating in the 1930s, much due to the Great Depression, theater owners would book double features, two films for the price of one, as a way for the customers to find value in attending a night at the cinema. Yes, you lucky people, just sit back for a moment, relax, and notice the delightfully clean, cool, and refreshing atmosphere 
of this scientifically air-conditioned theater. Great, isn't it? Remember, you can enjoy great motion picture entertainment all summer long in cool comfort at this theater. Dracula's Daughter may not have been as successful as Browning's 1931 film, Dracula, but it was overall received quite well with most critics of the time. The corpse of interest in Dracula's Daughter, Gloria Holden, plays Countess Maria Zaleska. This picture marks her first starring role, and despite what I feel is wonderful work, she reportedly was rather displeased with being cast in this picture. Holden did not have a fondness of horror films and was said to have looked down on the genre. She feared that taking a role such as this would deem her to a life of horror pictures, much like the fate of fellow actor Bela Lugosi. She had paid witness to his struggles and his attempts to distance himself from his portrayal as the Count in order to obtain other roles. Critic Mark Clark felt that it may have been her disenchantment with the role that led to such a great performance, stating, Her disdain for the part translates into a kind of self-loathing that perfectly suits her troubled character. She would go on to be most known for her work as a leading lady in B-movies and supporting actor in big-budget films. At the onset of production, Bella and Jane Wyatt were set to star in Dracula's Daughter. Unfortunately, despite there being set photos of Lugosi with Holden, like I mentioned earlier, Bela would not appear in this picture, except for being depicted as a wax corpse lying in Dracula's coffin. Rumor has it, Lugosi received around $4,000 for this minimal involvement. This payment was due to Lugosi being originally contracted to appear in the film at the salary of $4,000. However, through rewrites of the script, the final version did not include his role. He ended up earning more by not appearing in this film than he was actually paid when he filmed and starred in Dracula, maybe one of the only times he made over on the studio. I am... Dracula. Oh, it's, it's really good to see you. I don't know what happened to the driver and my luggage and... Well, and with all this, I, I thought I was in the wrong place. I bid you welcome. Dracula's daughter opens a few moments after Dracula ends. Two policemen discover a corpse a man with a broken neck at the bottom of the stairs, and Vaughn Helsing, again played by Edward Van Sloan, has killed the vampire, Dracula, with a stake through his heart. This is where we witness Bela's only scene, if you want to call it that, as a piece of wax, stiff, lying in his bunk. I had no choice. Naturally, I destroyed him. Well... I've heard a great many fantastic stories in my time, Professor Van Helsing, but if you'll forgive my saying so, this one... I know. But surely, surely you can't expect a face in the English jury with such a defense. It's my only one, because it's true. It's utterly mad. Mad? 
or unbelievable. Oh, very well, in deference to your position in the scientific world, let us say unbelievable. The strength of the vampire, Sir Basil, lies in the fact that he is unbelievable. Vampires, vampires, oh, why do you persist? Professor Van Helsing, would you mind explaining to me, as of course you must explain to your jury just what you mean by vampires? Van Helsing is arrested as the police believe he is responsible for killing the man that was found with the broken neck and for the corpse found in the coffin. There is much explanation from Von Helsing attempting to have the detectives understand that one can't murder one that is already dead. Logically, Helsing realizes that a lawyer is not going to get him out of this mess, so instead he calls upon a doctor, a psychiatrist, Dr. Jeffrey Garth, played by Otto Kruger. The doctor is a former student of Von Helsing's. While Helsing awaits at the prison, Countess Maria Zaleska makes her first appearance, donning an alluring black velvet cloak and hood. She utilizes an enchanting ring to hypnotize one of the guards in order to find out the whereabouts of Dracula's corpse. With the assistance of her eerie yet effective servant Sandor, they steal the corpse. I've come to see the body of Count Dracula. Sorry, Mom, but I ain't allowed. I must. Why? To make sure that he's dead. You'll have to take my word for it, Mom. He is. Where is he? In there? Sorry, Mom, you can't go in there. It's against orders from Scotland Yard. They'd never know if you didn't tell them. Orders is orders. What can I do to persuade you? Can I offer you money? I'd rather you wouldn't, Mom. Or something more precious than money? Look, you've never seen a jewel as beautiful as this, nor as compelling. This leads to one of my favorite scenes of the picture, the Countess burning the body of Dracula over a large open flame in a forestry backdrop. I love the overall production design and lighting of this film. It is so haunting, particularly in this scene. Upon performing this ritual, she hopes to have broken the curse of vampirism that is coursed through her veins. In the name of the All-Holiest, and through this cross, be the evil spirit cast out until the end of time. Free, free forever. Do you understand what that means, Sander? Free to live as a woman, free to take my place in the bright world of the living, instead of among the shadows of the dead. Countess seeks the normie life, and is convinced that with burning the corpse, the spell has been broken. Frankly, I am baffled why this woman would want to turn her back on the exciting and rewarding life one leads as a vampire, but to each their own, I suppose. Unfortunately for her, this fiery ceremony did not work. Just one look into her intoxicating eyes and one can see the truth. She is death. Sander, look at me. What do you see in my eyes? Death. It does not take long for the Countess to give into her thirst her thirst for blood. 
She resumes her hunting under the pale moonlight and with the use of her, what I shall refer to as, her mood ring. Children of the 80s may recall this ever-so-popular ring. Your favorite little gravedigger had one in her youth. Unfortunately, it did not possess the same mesmerizing powers as the Countess. She utilizes the mood ring to hypnotize her victims before taking a bite. When did he have the last transfusion? About four hours before he died. What do you think caused his death? An unnatural loss of blood which we've been unable to determine. If we only knew what caused those two sharp punctures over the jugular vein. I have to pause for a moment to mention my adoration for the Countess's style and her way of life. It came as no surprise for me to learn while reading the book Vampire, Dark Goddess of Horror by Scott Poole that Vampira herself was influenced by Holden's look in Dracula's Daughter. The Countess sleeps in a coffin by day and at night is enrobed in a cape the color of a moonless sky with a hood to keep her hair protected and ears warm. I realized I really do need to acquire capes for all occasions. There comes times, particularly in the cooler months, in which a hood would come in so handy. Then there is her dark lipstick, pale face, which truly accents her foreboding eyes. Holden appears to have used minimal makeup, but yet it is done so effectively spooky. I think it is her overall mysterious appearance that makes her of interest to others. When she attends what is referred to as a social affair, she meets Dr. Garth, the former student of von Helsing, that is supposed to be assisting him with his whole murderous affair. The Countess believes the doctor may be able to assist her as well, to help her stop the feelings she is overcome with from beyond the grave, to be rid of the influence of her father. You mean like people imagining they're Napoleon? More or less. Like any disease of the mind, it can be cured. All we have to discover is what brought about the obsession in order to affect mental release. Release? Yes, release. Sympathetic treatment will release the human mind from any obsession. I'm, I'm interested in what you've been saying, Mr. Garth. I'm wondering if we might talk about it one evening soon. Just you and I. I'd like to. Very much. Meanwhile, it is learned that Countess Maria is an artist, and she asks Sandor to fetch her a model so that she can paint. Sandor combs the streets and comes upon a young woman named Lily. He encounters her at a bridge, a moment in which seems she is contemplating a grave choice. He convinces her not to go through with such an act, promising her food, warmth, and money. Reluctantly, she follows him. He takes her to the Countess. Initially, the Countess tries to resist her urge, but eventually her vampire ways take over and she attacks Lily. I suppose you'll want these pulled down, won't you? Yes. Finish your wine, it'll warm you. Stand by the fire for a moment. You mustn't catch cold. Why are you looking at me that way? 
Won't I do? Yes, you'll do very well indeed. Do you like jewels, Lily? This is very old and very beautiful. I'll show it to you. I don't think I'll pose tonight. I, I think I'll go if you don't mind. Please don't come any closer. I This scene in particular was deemed rather provocative for its time, as many felt it hinted at the idea of lesbianism. The concept of the lesbian vampire had been a trend in writing dating back to 1872, with the novella by Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmilla, which some also feel Dracula's daughter may have been loosely based on. It was, in fact, Dracula's daughter that for the first time incorporated this concept into a film. This, of course, ruffled the feathers of the silly production code administration. Before Universal shot the scene, they had an officer from the production code take a look at a draft, and this was how it was decided to only show Lily posing with her neck and shoulders exposed and no suggestion of her undressing. The studio followed up the scene with having Lily shown at the hospital because in case there was any doubt that she was indeed attacked by a vampire. Universal attempted to exploit the idea of lesbian themes in some of their early advertising of the film. In the book, The Celluloid Closet, written by gay film historian Vito Russo, he said, with taglines such as, Save the Women of London, from Dracula's daughter, it was rather clear that the lesbian themes were there. In looking at the scene today, for me it seems there is something to be said regarding the Countess's idea of curing her vampirism through psychiatry. Well, that is just as ridiculous as attempting to cure one's homosexuality as a mental illness. It just doesn't work. Your favorite little gravedigger believes life is short, Before it is coffin time, we should be allowed to love whoever we want to love. And if you have fangs, you might as well bite. The loss of blood. The marks on the neck. Hmm. I don't understand, gentlemen. I don't see how it can be, but those are the marks of the vampire. Well, it becomes increasingly evident owing to the disappearance of Dracula's body and the subsequent evidence that he isn't dead at all. No vampire can survive the stake. Before Lily succumbs to her wounds, Dr. Garth hypnotizes her, and she reveals just enough information, including the attacker, Countess Zaleska. In what my opinion is a smart decision, the Countess decides to give up on fighting her urges and accepts that a cure for vampirism is not possible. So she runs off to Transylvania, and to lure the great doctor... She kidnaps his secretary, Janet. You know that I've just come from the bedside of the girl you brought here last night? Well, she's dead. What a pity. She seemed so healthy. Another victim last week. A man. You're no longer the sympathetic Samaritan, are you, Dr. Garth? No, you're a policeman. Nevertheless, you can still help me. And you shall. You must be insane. Desperate, rather. There isn't anything I won't do now to enlist your aid in freeing me of the curse of the Draculas. Draculas? Yes, 
I am Dracula's daughter. Oh, Transylvania. I can't wait to visit there someday. One can even tour Dracula's castle. And on Halloween, you can even spend a night there. How thrilling that would be. Someday, goblins and ghouls, I shall find myself there with my werewolf, Benjamin. Who knows? Maybe, while I am there, I shall find myself under similar circumstances as Dr. Garth, to be transformed into a vampire. The Countess's main objective in luring Dr. Garth to the castle is so that she can change him into a vampire. This way, she shall have an eternal companion. What do you want of Garth? Release? Still release? No, I know that's impossible now. I want him. What do you mean? His life in exchange for hers. His death? No, no, not death. Life, eternal life with me. Have you forgotten your promise that I was to have eternal life? There is death for Garth if he comes here. Death, not life, and destruction for you. Get out. Unfortunately, before the ritual can be performed, the Countess's servant, Sandor, shoots her through the heart with an arrow. As he wanted to be the chosen one, the one to be made immortal, he attempts to kill the good doctor, but is shot by the police. A wooden shaft through her heart, just as I drove the stake through his. The woman is beautiful. She was beautiful when she died. A hundred years ago. I hope you enjoyed the episode and that you plan to seek out Dracula's daughter. You can, of course, find it to view in the wild on the internets or purchase a copy to ensure that you have it to take it to your grave. And while viewing, may I suggest a blood orange margarita to settle your nerves. Compliments of my mixologist, Liz Locke of Cinema Sips. I'll post the recipe on the Crip page at moviejohn.com. In my next episode, I will be uncovering the grave of Carol Lombard to dissect and examine the 1933 picture Supernatural. Until then, please make sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes and give us a rating and review to help other goblins and ghouls find the show. If it is a kind review, I may even read it on the show, like this one from my werewolf and love, our little Eddie, Benjamin Leonard. I'll admit, as Rosalie's husband, a small percentage of the reason I listen faithfully is to make sure she's not plotting to murder me in my sleep. The rest is because I genuinely enjoy hearing her share her interest and in new discoveries in classic cinema. Ah, sweet Benjamin, I would not dare interrupt your sleep time. However, I will ensure that whatever your fate is, it is sure to be painless. Take note, goblins and ghouls, a raving review may keep you from finding an early grave. Mwah! So log into iTunes to leave your own review or send us an email. Don't be a stranger. I want to know what you think. Drop your favorite little gravedigger a line at cinematiccrypt at gmail.com. If you have a suggestion for the show 
or a corpse you want me to dig up, let me know. You can also reach me on Twitter and Instagram at Cinematic Crypt. Don't forget to visit moviejohn.com shop to subscribe to the movie zine that I create quarterly with my film pals. Our current issue features jetpacks, flying cars, and spaceships. Yes, that's right, the future. Does your future hold a mailbox filled with awesomeness? Visit moviejohn.com shop to subscribe today as they are beginning to fly out into the universe. This issue features a few writings from your favorite little gravedigger and a crossword puzzle too, celebrating a former flick pick of the crypt, Frankenstein, 1970. Shout out to my Canadian film pal, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers, for providing and creating a lot of the tunes you hear on this program. Also, thanks to fellow movie genre, the Hollywood hunk, Hugo Marmuji, for the rad Cinematic Crypt logo. And remember, if you can't get enough of my soothing voice, make sure to check out I Saw in a Movie, a weekly advice podcast that goes to the cinema for the answer. We are still taking questions, and no question is too silly. Maybe you're wondering where to start in silent film watching, or what to do with that creepy doll that is hiding out in your attic. Ask away by contacting us on Twitter at I Saw It In A Movie, or email at dear I Saw It In A Movie at gmail.com. Or if you're old fashioned, like your favorite little gravedigger, you can contact us via snail mail. At Attention Movie John, P.O. Box 20172, Philadelphia, PA 19145. All of this information is available on the website as well, moviejohn.com under MJ Podcasts. Can't wait to hear from you, old sport. And remember, for every question, there is a movie with the answer. A new episode is available every Monday. You don't know. Just one of your many toys You don't own me Don't say I can't go with other boys And don't tell me what to do Don't tell me what to say And please, when I go out with you Don't put me on display It is now time to close the coffin. Here I leave you to rest with my latest epitaph, my tombstone quote, compliments of Countess Maria. Thank you. I never drink wine. Why drink wine when you can have goodbye, film pals? was late one night when the moon shone bright I was fast in the cemetery When a bite on the cheek left me feeling weak That's where I met Vampire Mary